When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. First, I want to say thanks so much for listening to my podcast. It is a labor of love for me, and it always brings me great joy to know that I am connecting with listeners. A fair number of you are newer listeners, and I thought I would introduce you to one of my favorite and most listened to episodes that you might not have had a chance to catch yet. And for seasoned listeners, this will be an opportunity to remind yourself about some of these nonfiction titles you still want to read. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and recommend. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read. So I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you love to read, please consider joining my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month, one where I talk about the next month's most anticipated books and one where I chat with an independent bookseller, all about their store and the books that they recommend. In addition, I host a monthly early read where members have advanced access via NetGalley to a digital copy of a book, and then we meet on Zoom with the author pre-publication to chat about that book. January's book is The Sweet Spot by Amy Popel, and for February there are two, Lauren Willig's new book, Two Wars and a Wedding, and a debut by Lee Abramson called A Likely Story. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Elizabeth Barnhill about our favorite nonfiction books. We are calling the episode, There's No Way It's Nonfiction, because these narrative nonfiction books are so entertaining and read more like fiction than traditional nonfiction. Elizabeth is the adult book buyer for the independent bookstore in Waco, Texas, called Fabled Bookshop and Cafe. She graduated from Baylor University and worked for 20 years as a speech pathologist before turning her lifelong passion of reading and books into her dream job when Fable opened in 2019. Elizabeth spends her days reading as many upcoming releases as possible and hosting events at Fabled. You can find her on Bookstagram at at Waco Reads. This episode is a little bit longer than normal because we both had trouble narrowing our lists down and finally each settled on 15 as our minimum number. I hope you enjoy our conversation and our recommendations. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, Elizabeth. How are you today? I'm great. It's good to talk to you today, Cindy. I'm always happy when you're back, and I'm super excited about today's episode. We are talking about books that are nonfiction that we love, and we're calling it No Way It's Nonfiction. 
I could not wait to do this episode. I'm a huge nonfiction lover, and I can't wait to talk about my favorite nonfiction. I agree. So one of the things we talked a little bit about ahead of time was that we are trying to target books that read fast, read a little bit like fiction, that aren't the dry, you know, still interesting sometimes, but not fast-paced stories. But instead, we're targeting books that people will pick up and not want to put down. Yes, I think there's been a really big push for more narrative nonfiction. And there are so many times where fact is truly stranger than fiction. And I'm happy for authors who can uncover these fascinating stories. I agree. There's a variety of categories in nonfiction. Do you want to talk a little bit about that since you work in a bookstore? Yes, we have quite a few different categories. We have the society section, kind of important topics of the day. We have a a lot in that section. There's also self-help, bio-memoir, food writing, history, true crime, and nature and science writing. So I think there is something for everybody. If you love historical fiction, you probably would enjoy just a plain history. There's a lot of really good history that reads like fiction. Or if you love mystery thriller, of course, there's the true crime aspect as well. So there's something for everybody in nonfiction. What I think is interesting after we talked about categories, as I was trying to categorize some of mine, sometimes they really fall into a couple different categories too. I Yes, I agree. What about your favorite type of nonfiction? Is there a category that appeals to you the most? Well, in thinking about it, I think there's two sections of nonfiction that really appeal to me. Uh, One of them is history where I learn about somebody in history I'd never heard of before. And I love when uh, authors take the time to uncover women's stories, especially that have been kind of under the radar and they do the research to bring those women or other people to light. But my, my dearest love of nonfiction is disaster stories, mostly natural disaster, but I'm non-discriminatory. I also enjoy a good human disaster. I talked to Allison. She's heard me talk about this a lot, and she knows my favorite disaster stories, and most of them involve ships. So this is a very specific genre that really, really is something I dearly love. Isn't it funny when you look at it that way? Because I hadn't really thought about what my favorites were until we were getting ready for this episode. And I clearly love books about buildings, like half, no, not half, maybe a third of my books deal with some famous building or the people who inhabited it. And I just hadn't really paid attention to that before. I mean, obviously I'm drawn to those books and I realized that, but as I was pulling them out, I'm like, wow, okay, that is something that definitely appeals to me and that's what I'm drawn to. And then I love nature stories. I really like anything that takes place out in nature, national parks, anything like that. And I like bios and memoirs. It just depends on who it's about. Yeah, I love bio memoir too. And one of the things that's kind of a trend now is for celebrities to do bio memoir and then narrate their own stories on in an audio format. And that is always a lot of fun to listen to. It really is. I like it when authors read their own books, I guess, especially when they read them well, because it just seems so much more personal. Agreed. So what about auto-read authors? Do you have any nonfiction authors that no matter what the subject matter is, you're going to pick up their book? Well, of course, number one for me would be Eric Larson. He is the goat when it comes to narrative nonfiction. And he writes one about every three or four years, and I'm always just waiting patiently for that event to occur. Um, I also love Candace Millard. She is a, a wonderful author. Actually, she did her master's degree at Baylor. 
and uh, Hampton Sides is another one who is who's fabulous. So I do have some that I would I'll read anything they write. Oh, Bill Bryson, of course, too. He's he's wonderful. I echo you on Eric Larson and Bill Bryson. I just think both of their works are fabulous. And then I also love Rick Bragg. So pretty much anything Rick is going to write, I'm going to read. Well, I can't believe I didn't say Rick Bragg. You know how much I love the man. Another one of my favorites in history is Nathaniel Philbrick. He's written some really good books. One of them's on my favorites list. He has one coming out this fall called Travels with George, where he and his wife travel the same path that George Washington traveled when he was president. And that one is a really good one to be excited about this fall. I keep seeing that different places and I need to try to get a hold of it. It's great. We decided we would each highlight some of our favorites in the nonfiction genre that qualify as no way it's nonfiction. So why don't you start with your first pick? All right. Well, I don't read too much in the self-help genre, but one that really sticks out to me is Why We Can't Sleep by Ada Calhoun. I actually met the author a couple of years ago at an event, and I really enjoyed talking to her. She wrote an article, and it was either in the New York Times or the New Yorker, with the same title, Why We Can't Sleep. And it's the story of women in Generation X. So that's kind of the smallest generation alive right now. We've got the baby boomers on one side of us and the millennials on the other side. We kind of get lost in the middle. And we were the least watched group of children in history. Our mothers were working and we were latchkey kids. And it also talked about how our mothers were the ones who said, you can do anything you want to do and kind of really didn't put that into practice, but taught that to their daughters. And what we have realized is you can do anything you want to do. You just can't do it all well. So um, there was a lot of really interesting nuggets of information in that book. I will say I'm a little bit of a cheerier person, um, have a uh, happier outlook maybe than some of the women in this book, but I really enjoyed it. And I think any women in their 40s and 50s definitely should read the book. That's Why We Can't Sleep by Ada Calhoun. That sounds really interesting. And I think you're right. For people that are in our generation, would be really appealing. Yes. So my first book is in the bio memoir section, and it's The Best Cook in the World, Tales from My Mama's Table by Rick Bragg. And like I said earlier, I love Rick Bragg. And I particularly love this book because he talks about his mother and growing up and how her cooking was sort of the thing that he associates the most with her. She was in the hospital. This was maybe, I think, five or six years ago. And it wasn't looking so good for her. And he kind of panicked and realized, He didn't know any of her recipes. He didn't know where she learned a lot of the recipes, how to cook any of these things. And so when she got out of the hospital, he decided that he would interview her and get her recipes and get all the stories behind the recipes. The most interesting part of that was that she owned nothing in the way of measuring spoons, measuring cups, anything like that. Everything to her was a dab of that, a smack of this. Oh, I just guesstimate. So he had to really sit down and they had to kind of cook each recipe over and over again till he was able to translate it into something that he could put as a recipe in the book. So each chapter is a story about his family, about his mom, oftentimes where the recipe came from, with his signature humor, which I always love because he is just so funny. And then at the end is the recipe. So it was wonderful because he was able to get all of these stories down from her you know, while she was still alive, and I think she is still alive, but, you know, while she was able to relay everything to him, work with him in the kitchen, 
etc. So that is The Best Cook in the World, Tales from My Mama's Table by Rick Bragg. Yes, I absolutely adore Rick Bragg. I read everything he writes. And one of my all-time favorites is All Over But the Shoutin', which is about his mother, too. So he's a, a good good Southern boy who loves his mama, and I love all of his stories about her. And The Prince of Frogtown, where he writes about his father. <laughs> he's just a wonderful author. He really is. And he has a new book coming out this fall. Yes, it's already on my list of favorites, all about his dog, and the dog is still alive. So don't don't worry. Great. Well, what's up next for you? Okay, I'm going to switch over to bio memoir. There's several of these. I'm, I'm trying to find ones that are maybe a little bit more under the radar. And one of my very favorites is called Empty Mansions, The Mysterious Life of Huguette Clark and the Spending of an American Fortune. And this is by Bill Dedman. I remember watching the Today Show, I think, years ago. And talking about this reclusive woman who was one of the richest women in America, I think, I mean, she had hundreds of millions of dollars and she basically lived in a tiny apartment. She had these huge mansions on each coast, but there had not been a picture taken of her in decades. So it kind of tells her privileged upbringing. Her father was in the copper mining industry. He actually had a copper mine in Montana, and his company came in and kind of stripped the whole area, then left. So there's a lot kind of to think about with that as well. But so this woman who was a recluse had these millions of dollars, and there was kind of controversy over who was taking the money and how things were getting spent. So it was a fascinating story. And I actually picked it for my personal book club years ago, and everyone loved the story. So I highly recommend it. It's Empty Mansions by Bill Dedman. I remember when that one came out and I never got to it, but clearly I should because I've heard nothing but great things about it. Yes. What about you? So my next one is one of my very favorite books, and it's called Dear Fahrenheit 451, Love and Heartbreak in the Stacks. It's a librarian's love letters and breakup notes to the books in her life, and it's by Annie Spence. Annie is a librarian, I think in Kansas. And so one day she was, I think, cleaning her house and she was dusting her books and she realized she was talking to her books, like in her head, you know, kind of having this conversation, one-sided, obviously. And it gave her the idea to write letters to various books. It is just such a fun read. It's an easy one to pick up and put down because each letter is distinctive from the last. And she just writes about, most of the time it's books, but sometimes I think it is a patron or two in the library. But she talks about her favorite book, which is The Virgin Suicides. She talks about not liking Fahrenheit 451 very much. So then she writes one to Christian Gray when that book came out that was like from his perspective about those books, which is hilariously funny. But I just loved it. I thought it was so clever and it made me think about books I hadn't thought about in a long time and just different aspects of book loving and working in a library. And just over time, how as you mature, you view different books differently. But it's a small book, super quick read, and it'd make a great gift. The year that it came out, which I think was 2017, I gave it to a bunch of my friends. But that, again, is called Dear Fahrenheit 451, Love and Heartbreak in the Stacks by Annie Spence. This is one I am dying to pick up. I have not read it yet. Some of these books, you know, honestly, at our bookstore, books about books just sell like hotcakes. This one does not need my help to sell. But I still am very, very curious because I do love a good uh, love letter to books. Me too. If it is something like that, I'm always going to pick it up. 
Yes. Okay, my next one's funny. Um, <laughs> everyone knows at our store that I am a huge proponent of the donkey book, and this is Running with Sherman by Christopher McDougall. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed this book. It's kind of sort of bio-memoir, sort of nature, but Christopher McDougall talks about living in the Amish country in, um, I guess, I think it's Pennsylvania. He had heard of one of the farmers down the road who was having an issue with hoarding. And one of the things he was not taking very good care of was this donkey named Sherman. And Sherman looked close to death. His toenails were curling under. He was malnourished. And so Christopher McDougall decides he is going to nurse this donkey back to health. And the funny thing is he takes takes Sherman back to his farm. And all of the other animals on the farm kind of take Sherman under their wing and help protect him and help get his confidence back. It kind of reminded me of the movie Babe. And so anyway, Christopher McDougall is a runner. He writes a lot about running. And he has decided that he is going to give this donkey something to do because donkeys love to have work. And he has discovered that there is something called burrow racing where you run next to your donkey. I guess most of these races are in Colorado. So he talks about training with Sherman to do these burrow racing events. So there's a whole lot in this book. It, it actually made me tear up in the end. It's got a really wonderful message. And it's kind of funny. I, I think Christopher McDougall heard how much I love this book. And he actually sent me a t-shirt with Sherman's image on the front. And I'll save, her, <laughs> I'll save it forever. I love it so much. So that is Running with Sherman by Christopher McDougall. Okay, that's so great that he sent you a t-shirt with Sherman on it. I love it. I actually have a picture of it on my Instagram. <laughs> After you and I talked about this book when I visited Fabled, I downloaded it on Libro FM, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, the pictures are in there. You can see all of Sherman and all of his little friends and all of their the people who have helped Sherman uh, get nursed back to health. Well, it sounds like a very sweet story. All right. My next one is Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots by Morgan Jerkins. So Morgan was realizing that she knows a lot about her father's history and family, but not very much about her mother's. So she started asking questions and realized her mother herself didn't necessarily know a lot about her history. She looked back and realized that her family had migrated from the South during the Great Migration, which took place between the 1920s and the 1970s. And that with the Great Migration, a lot of these families ended up losing some of their heritage. They did not want to think back on the things they had encountered or were living through in the South, or they wanted to just look forward, not backward. And that as a result, there'd been a lot of loss of family traditions, sometimes food, though food seemed to carry through better than most of the rest of the things, and just the connection with where they were originally from. So she retraces these steps and looks at the different states and where most of the people in those states migrated to, like I think South Carolina. I can't remember exactly, but certain states would go to certain other states. She kind of traces all of that and tries to figure out, you know, why that happened and the resulting loss. And it's just absolutely fascinating. I think in light of a lot of the conversations we're having more frequently now and just the way different groups of people have been treated, it was just a really interesting glimpse into something I had never thought about before. And that is Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots by Morgan Jerkins. That one sounds great. I I don't think I've heard of that one. I need to look that one up. She had a new fiction book come out this spring, Call Baby. 
I never got to it, but it was a lot of places. So that's the same woman. Ah, okay. Got it. All right. My next bio memoir is No One Will Tell You This But Me by Bess Kolb. And Bess, she's an Emmy-nominated TV writer. She's a New Yorker contributor. I think she worked on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. And this is her debut memoir. And in this book, this is sort of a love story to her grandmother, who was a Russian Jewish immigrant named Bobby Bell. And Bobby just doted on Bess and sent her the funniest text messages, voicemails, emails, and they're all just hilarious. And and actually on the cover, some of these phrases were put on the cover and they just sound like a a Russian Jewish immigrant grandmother, (laughs) something that makes me wish that I had one of those myself. But in the story, Bess kind of takes on the personality of Bobby and tells Bobby's story from leaving Russia to becoming a, a New York, a New Yorker. And it's just very, very sweet and poignant. It made me miss my grandmother. And I know other people who are not who don't read the same as I do have read it, and they've also loved it. I, I dearly loved the story. No one will tell you this but me by Bess Kolb. That is my next one as well. I just love that book. I somehow missed it when it was before it came out, but then I started seeing it everywhere when it was published. And so I picked it up and it's just such a wonderful read. And again, I think it does appeal to any type of reader. I gifted that one to a variety of people when it came out. And I just so funny, like the fact that she saved all of those wonderful messages from her grandmother and then was able to include them in the book and just the hilarious things that her grandmother would say. There were times when I was laughing out loud, and then two pages later, I was tearing up. I know. It just was a really special book. And it's small. It's an easy afternoon read. I agree completely. I definitely recommend that one. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to move on to a different category here in a minute, but I wanted to do an honorable mention to some of my other favorite bio memoir. We don't have time to go through all of them, but feel free to look these up and see if any of these appeal to you. I loved all of them. And that's Pappy Land by Wright Thompson. A Charmed Life, Growing Up in Macbeth's Castle, and that is a fascinating story by Liza Campbell. Of course, All Over But the Shout we talked about. And um, Empire of Pain, Dope Sick, and Bad Blood. Those three kind of remind me of each other. And I just was fascinated by all three and learned so much. I absolutely loved Bad Blood as well. And I feel like that is just such a fascinating story. And it is a true page turner. So I definitely recommend that one. And then I'm listening right now to Empire of Pain, and it is also equally fascinating. I keep making myself go on more walks so I can keep listening to it. Yeah, those three I mentioned really do kind of complement each other. I would would highly recommend all three of them together. The last one that I have remaining in that category that's kind of an honorable mention is The Kings of Big Spring, God, Oil, and One Family Search for the American Dream by Brian Mueller. And that takes place in West Texas and a family that had spent multiple generations in West Texas. They had originally come from Georgia and is just kind of as the family's story unfolds and heads into the 80s and oil and gas are discovered and sort of how the whole area changes. It's an absolutely fascinating read, especially if you're a Texan, but I really think for anyone. So does that take place in Big Spring? It does, yes. I I spent a lot of time in West Texas when I was young and I know exactly where Big Spring is. So that sounds really interesting to me. I think you would really like it. And I guess there was an old famous hotel there. There's so many different fascinating things. And one of his aunts goes out and works with Bob Wills. There's just a variety of things that get pulled into the story. And I really enjoyed it. In fact, I saw him speak 
here in Houston when the book first came out. And one of his like long lost relatives showed up for the event and they'd never met and had this big reunion. It was really fun. Hmm, sounds great. So another category of books that I really enjoy is food writing. Of course, we know Ruth Reichel is a fabulous food writer, as well as Laurie Colwin. Of course, she, she's passed away, but I loved her book, Home Cooking. But maybe my favorite book on food writing is The Kitchen Counter Cooking School by Kathleen Finn. I feel like this book really changed how I personally cook. I love to cook. And um, this entire book for me is dog-eared. So Kathleen Finn went to Le Cordon Bleu and came home, fired up, but then kind of didn't exactly know what she wanted to do with her degree. And one day she was in the grocery store and saw a woman with so much over-processed foods in her grocery cart. She went up to her and kind of gave her a little information on how to cook. I think it was how to cook a chicken. And the woman was completely clueless. So Kathleen decided that she was going to teach ordinary women how to cook well. And so you, in the story, you meet several different women and what they were going through in their lives and how Kathleen helped them to learn how to cook. So I love this book. I still think about it all the time when I'm roasting a chicken and I can't recommend it more highly. That's The Kitchen Counter Cooking School by Kathleen Finn. I'm not a great cook at all. And I do love actually reading books about cooks and about, you know, chefs and working in restaurants, but that sounds like one that I would really benefit from. Yes, it really does teach just the lay person how to make things from scratch, and it's really not as hard as you think it is. Okay, good. I'm going to have to add that one to my list. So my next one is in true crime, and it is Death and Mudlick, A Coal Country Fight Against the Drug Companies That Delivered the Opioid Epidemic by Eric Eyre. And I listened to this one, which I would recommend because there is a fair amount of details, statistics, etc., about how many pills were flooding that whole area of West Virginia. And so I think maybe listening to it might be easier than reading it and you can speed it up a little bit. But I absolutely love this book and I think about it all the time. And as I'm listening to Empire of Pain right now, I really think about it. Eric lives in West Virginia and was working at one of the major West Virginia newspapers when he encountered this story and he ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize for it. So he turns it into a book and he writes about how it started with one woman whose brother died of an overdose and she was so angry and she started sitting out in her car out by the pharmacy in the town called Kermit, West Virginia, 382 population. And there would be cars lined up for blocks. They were coming from all over the place as far as Florida, all the neighboring states. And things were so busy at that pharmacy that they ended up setting up a little stand, like a hot dog stand in the parking lot to feed all of the people while they were waiting to go through the drive through And so she knew that's where her brother had gotten some of his pills. And so she kind of began on her, on her own to investigate. And she ends up roping in a lawyer and then Eric. And they all begin investigating the story and realizing that in this instance, it's the distributors that were the ones that were mainly really pushing the pills and had the role in, I think there was something like 9 million pills were sent to this pharmacy in Kermit in a two-year span. Like it was just insane. Like when he was done, and that's why it's like, there are so many numbers in the book, it's kind of hard to keep up with them all. But it was something like enough pills for every resident of West Virginia to have had like seven years supply in one year. It was insane. 
And so he kind of started delving into this story and, you know, what was happening and how was this able to be happening? And he looked at the DEA side of it, who actually in the end kind of were almost helping out, you know, wittingly or unwittingly. And then these distributors and these doctors that would just write prescription after prescription and these pharmacies that were completely benefiting from selling just, you know, incredible amounts of the opioids. So it was just an absolutely fascinating and depressing story. And it's so relevant right now because they've just had this settlement in most of those states that West Virginia actually opted out of, where some of those companies are actually settling with the states regarding the epidemic. Yeah, I think it's kind of the new uh, cigarette. Opioids are, to this time, what maybe the cigarette companies were dealing with a decade or two ago. And I learned about that in Dope Six. So those books sound very, very similar to each other. Yeah. So that, so that is Death in Mudlick by Eric Eyre. All right. So my first, now I love true crime. Of course, the, the, my favorite of all time is I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I think that's the first book I ever read that I actually had a nightmare in. And I don't, I can't imagine any true crime being better than that one. But the first one I wanted to talk about today was Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. Patrick Radden Keefe also wrote Empire of Pain, and he's now on my go-to list anytime he writes a book. I like how he researches and writes fascinating stories. But Say Nothing is about the troubles in Ireland. And I'm of Irish descent and kind of felt embarrassed that I really didn't even know what the troubles were, what the IRA stood for. And so I learned a lot uh, about the history of crime and uh, the troubles in Ireland. But this one really focuses in on a woman named Jean McConville. And in December of 1972, she was 38 years old, a mother of 10. And when her children were in her the apartment, the IRA came in and grabbed Jean and drug her outside with her children screaming, and they never heard from her again. So this was sort of the uncovering of the murder of Jean McConville while also discussing what happened in Ireland to cause such great strife. So I Learned a lot and was just horrified by the story, and I can't recommend it highly enough. This is Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. There were so many great reviews for that book, and I was already interested in it. And now that I'm loving Empire of Pain, I'm even more interested. But the other book that really made me interested in reading his story also was Northern Spy by Flynn Berry. It's fiction and it's a mystery, but it has to do with the IRA and the Troubles. And I just don't know much about that at all. And I learned some from her book, but I really want to go back and listen to Say Nothing because I feel like it would fill in a lot of the gaps for me. Yes, this book really helped me understand Northern Spy better because then I had a pretty good foundation of knowledge on the IRA. Good. Well, it's up next for me as soon as I get done with Empire of Pain. (laughs) So I'm moving on to nature, which is one of my favorite categories. And my first one is really part nature, part true crime. And it really could fall squarely in either category, so I put it here in nature. And it's The Falcon Thief, A True Tale of Adventure, Treachery, and the Hunt for the Perfect Bird. It's by Joshua Hammer. And so it has to do with the theft of rare bird eggs, something I knew absolutely nothing about, and how much these eggs are worth for collectors. People store them in their homes and privacy because it's illegal to have a lot of these eggs. And then also there's a huge falcon... I think it's falcon racing in the Middle East, which I also knew nothing about. And so a lot of times these eggs will be stolen to take over there for breeding purposes. People will travel on airplanes and they want to keep the eggs alive. So they'll tape them to themselves, like across their stomach or in various areas, or they'll put them in coolers. 
just different ways of traveling with them to keep the eggs safe. So it's a very interesting story. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It's a quick read, and you'll learn a lot about something that you probably don't know much about. And that's The Falcon Thief by Joshua Hammer. Yes, I loved that book, too. I am I am actually quite a bird nerd. <laughs> and we have lots and lots of bird books at the store because they just make me happy. But this one was a really, really fascinating story. So I 100% endorse that. Good. My next one is My Last True Crime, Furious Hours by Casey Sepp. I really enjoyed this story. It's divided up into thirds. The first third of the book tells the story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell. He was a minister, an African-American minister in eastern Alabama in, I think it was the 1960s. And what he would do is take out life insurance policies on different members of his family and then Shockingly, they would uh, die right after the insurance was paid for. And several of these murders actually happened the same way. So it was very, very obvious that something fishy was up. And he actually murdered a, one of a, a child in, the, in his community. And the father of this child was not very happy about that. So at the little girl's funeral, he sees the Reverend Willie Maxwell and shoots him. So Reverend Willie Maxwell is now dead. And in the second part of the book, it's the trial of the man who kills Willie Maxwell. And then the third part of the book is Harper Lee's interest in the story. So after all of her fame with To Kill a Mockingbird, she was looking for her second novel. And she was just convinced that this story was going to be the book that followed up To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, since you've probably never heard of the story, you must probably realize that that never happened. So it, it was just a really, really interesting story, and I knew nothing about it. That's Furious Hours by Casey Sepp. Okay, I knew that it had a connection to Harper Lee, but I didn't know what it was. And that sounds really good. And I remember that one was all over Instagram when it came out, too, with glowing reviews. But I never read it, but now I'm going to have to. It sounds really good. Very, very good. Highly recommend. Good. My next title is my last title in the nature category, and it is Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park by Connor Knighton. So Connor is engaged, I think this is in like 2015, and his fiance breaks up with him very close in time to the wedding. He's a little bit adrift, he's trying to figure out what to do, and not even four months later, she gets engaged to someone else. So he decides that he's really, you know, kind of despairing, needs something to take him in a complete different direction, occupy his time. And he decides he's going to visit every national park property in one year. So then he gets on the computer and starts looking and realizes that every national park property would be quite a long list of things because you have the parks, the monuments, the, you know, there's so many different types of national park properties. So he scales it back a bit and says every national park, of which I think at the time there were maybe 56. He goes and starts, he starts at Acadia, and then he just ping-pongs around the way it works for him and, you know, gets to the end of the year and he has seen every park. But instead of writing about them in the order in which he journeys to them, he writes about them by theme. So he chooses some particular thing like water or parks that were struggling with too many people attending or just various different things. And he groups them together that way and then writes about the parks themselves and some really cool details, stuff like I have never seen anywhere else because I love to read about national parks. We go to them a lot. It's something very interesting to me. And I had not heard of a lot of the stories he includes in his books. And then also some just personal insight as well. 
So I thought it was a fabulous read. I absolutely loved it. And I highly recommend it, especially if you like to road trip or you love national parks or just like reading about nature. And that one is Leave Only Footprints, My Acadia to Zion Journey Through Every National Park by Connor Knighton. That one is high on my list. One of the girls who I work with was listening to it the other day, and she was raving about it. So I definitely want to read that one as well. I love national parks, too. Me, too. And I think he's on CBS this morning, maybe the Sunday edition. And so I think he first pitched it to them. And then I do think he did something in relation to that when he was writing the book, maybe filmed his exploits at some of the different parks. But I've never seen him on TV. I've only read the book. Yeah, I watch him on CBS Sunday morning, and he he will talk about a different national park on each broadcast or several broadcasts. So I am familiar with his work, and it's very interesting. So my next book, speaking of national parks, takes place in Yellowstone National Park. This is my nod to nature writing, and it is American Wolf by Nate Blakesley. Nate lives in Austin, and I just I picked it up. I I like to support Texas authors. And I got sucked into the story and did not put it down until it was finished. So it tells the story of the the wolf population in Yellowstone was eradicated decades ago and kind of what it did to the ecosystem there when that happened. So, of course, since the wolves were not attacking elk, the elk population has gone out of control and the elk eat thistles. And so the thistle population was down. and so. It's interesting to think of when you take one thing out of an ecosystem, the ramifications. So it tells the story of one of the wolves that was reintroduced to Yellowstone, and the wolf's name is O6. So it kind of tells the story of O6 and the the fight between people who love the American wolf and love documenting them versus the farmers who live near Yellowstone who were losing livestock because of the the wolf population. So I I was fascinated by the story and learned so much and I loved it. That's American Wolf by Nate Blakesley. So I bought this book when I visited you at Fable and I haven't gotten to it yet and I hadn't really thought about it again just because I've got a huge stack of books. But I just recently read Once There Were Wolves by Charlotte McGonaghy, I think is how you say her last name. Have you read that one? Yes. Well, I mean, they tie together perfectly because, you know, that's where she got the idea for Once There Were Wolves was the reintroduction at Yellowstone and balancing, you know, how the idea that you take one thing out of an environment and it causes everything to become lopsided and then trying to reintroduce it and like numbering the wolves versus naming them. That's one of my favorite books this year. It's just beautiful. So now I'm going to have to go back in and read your wolf book. Yes, they tie together nicely. So now I'm going to enter history and my whole round of books about buildings. (laughs) So my first one is The Last Castle, the epic story of love, loss, and American royalty in the nation's largest home by Denise Kiernan. And this is about the Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina. I love the Biltmore. I have been there a number of times. It is the, I think, the largest privately owned home or was the largest privately owned home in the country. Certainly when it was built, it was the largest. And it was Edith and George Vanderbilt, and he wanted something a little bit farther away from his family. And so they began this process. And this, of course, was when North Carolina was much less developed than it is now. And so they shipped everything down there. It was designed by Richard Morris Hunt. And then the gardens were designed by architect Frederick Law Olmsted. And so, you know, he's very famous people that have had a lot to do with like Central Park and other buildings in New York City. And he ships them all down to North Carolina to build the Biltmore. Well, it takes 
something like 20 to 25 years. And he actually, I think he dies before the house is even completed. And so Edith ends up saddled with this incredibly large home with, you know, not a really great way to staff it and not everybody really wanting to spend a lot of time there at the time because it still was very remote. So it's just a fascinating story about the people of that era, the Vanderbilts, the house itself being built and everything that went into it. So I absolutely love that one. It's The Last Castle by Denise Kiernan. Yes, I learned about Frederick Law Olmsted when I read The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. That was my first book by him. And he helped set up the Chicago World's Fair. So that's another thing I love about nonfiction is you just get little nuggets of wisdom and they carry to other books. So I'm very interested in that one. I have not gotten to it yet, even though I own it. It's so good. And the last time I visited the Biltmore, I asked the woman in the bookstore, how come you don't have this book here? She goes, oh, there are some allegations in there that the Vanderbilt family are not happy with, so they won't allow us to sell it. Interesting. I know. I was like, ooh, juicy. Makes me want to read it more. Exactly. All right, so I'm going to shift now to some of my favorite history books. And the one that has captured my heart and I cannot sell it fast enough is Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. And this book, again, it's kind of interesting. I There are so many authors of history who are men. So I kind of like to find books that are a great history written by the in the female perspective. So I like to read her books. She's got several great ones. But this is a very interesting story about James Garfield, probably the most fascinating, wonderful president we know nothing about. And it talks about his rise to the presidency. And shortly after he became president, he was shot. And if he had been shot today, he would have probably spent two or three days in the hospital and been just fine. But instead, he develops this horrible infection. And doctors start fighting over the best way to care for him. And it's more of a power struggle between the doctors. And one of the doctors in this is Joseph Lister from Listerine fame. And he was really into antiseptic. And a lot of doctors didn't think that was important. And another person in this book is Alexander Graham Bell, who used some technology to try to find the bullet in James Garfield. So I learned so much from this book. It is not very long. It packs a big punch. I read it in an afternoon, and I think about it all the time. Uh, That is Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. That one sounds really good, and I don't think I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I loved it. So my next one is The Castle on Sunset, Life, Death, Love, Art, and Scandal at Hollywood Chateau Marmont by Sean Levy. I love this book. It is super juicy and gossipy while also providing a lot of fascinating information. So I pretty much love anything set in LA and Hollywood and that kind of whole genre of books, especially if they take place a while ago. So this talks about when the the chateau was built, and I think it was about 90 years ago, and how it was under the radar for a very long time, but all these famous people would stay there and have various things happening, but no one would know really what the hotel was, and you sort of had to be somebody to even be able to stay there. And then John Belushi, that's where he overdosed in the 70s. And so it kind of came into the social conscience a little more because of his passing away there. And then Lindsay Lohan in recent times ran up a huge bill. I think it's been like a decade now that she couldn't pay and there was a big lawsuit against her. So but over time, different people, Paul Newman spent a lot of time there. In fact, there's this great quote at the book in the book that I thought I would just read because I couldn't say it better. There are all these different rumors about the place. F. Scott Fitzgerald suffered a heart attack there during a midday tryst. Not true. 
Vivian Lee mourned the end of her marriage to Laurence Olivier in a suite plastered with photos of him, true. Rock Hudson met his first live-in lover there, the nephew of the hotel manager, not true. James Dean met Rebel Without a Cause director Nicholas Ray by entering the bungalow via the window rather than the door. Sort of true, sort of not. Anthony Perkins used the phone booth in the lobby because he didn't want the switchboard operator to listen in on his personal calls. Sadly true. Jim Morrison climbed the ornate balconies and rooftops in drug-fueled antics, mostly. So they go on and on. So there's just all of these different things that have happened there over the years, and he chronicles them. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I read it in like two days and loved it, and I still recommend it to people. And that is The Castle on Sunset by Sean Levy. That sounds really good. I I think I would be interested in that one. You need to look that one up. Okay, my next one is The Deepest South of All by Richard Grant. And this is a deep dive into Natchez, Mississippi. And it is a fascinating look at this town that is really hard to get to, very famous for its antebellum homes. And the town makes a lot of its money by promoting the antebellum lifestyle. So the town is trying to grapple with its past and give a nod to that while also looking toward the future in a, in a more equitable way. The town is a matriarchal society. The women run the show. It's a very conservative town, but the the mayor is, I think he won the, the mayoral ship by 90%. He's a gay African-American man. So it's a fascinating look into this little town. And I learned so much. Gregory Isles, or Greg Isles, who's one of my favorite authors, lives there and he's trying to help uh, modernize the city. It reminded me of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which is more of the, the deep dive into the Savannah culture. And I, I learned a lot and really, really enjoyed it. That's The Deepest South of All by Richard Grant. So my next one is another building book, The Plaza, The Secret Life of America's Most Famous Hotel by Julie Sato. I love this book. Again, another look at a building, a very famous building in a city, in New York City this time, and just the history of the building. And what I really like is something that I mentioned about what I like so much about The Ride of Her Life by Elizabeth Letts, is that Julie does a wonderful job of weaving in history, as well as the history of the plaza, the history of New York City at the time, like the first cab you know, regular yellow cab picked up somebody from the plaza to deliver them someplace. That was the first time a cab was ever used. And just various different things. In fact, the way that apartment rents are set in New York City and the idea that they could be frozen and rent controlled comes from the plaza. So there's just a lot of different neat historical things that she brings to life and talks about how sort of as the city grew in the 1900s, so did the plaza and they kind of were hand in hand. And then how now it is condominiums and very few of them have anybody living in them, but it's foreign nationals that have bought them for investments. And so, and in fact, right around the time that Julie was writing the book, a woman who lives in one of the condominiums got locked in where the trash receptacle is. And because nobody lives in the building, she was in there for over a day. She did not have her phone with her. There was no one around and she couldn't get out of the stairwell or wherever she was that she was locked in. For over a day, she was banging on the door and all this stuff. So it was just kind of interesting to go through the lives of that building and kind of where it is now. And it reflects, I think, a lot of what's happening to New York City today. And that's The Plaza by Julie Sato. Sounds good. Okay, my next history is The Worst Hard Time by Timothy Egan. Egan reminds me a lot of Eric Larson. I actually chose this book as one of my favorites for The Modern Mrs. Darcy when I was on that show. This is a deep dive into the Dust Bowl era. 
it really, I, I didn't know any, much about what happened during the Dust Bowl, but this book talks to survivors of that time period. It tells how so many people from the Northeast were tricked into moving to this awful, well, it's I'm sure it's a wonderful part of the country, but not very good for farming. It was sold as this beautiful place to farm, and it tells how the the poor farming practices of the day, and people just didn't know, that really stripped the land of one of its greatest natural resources, which was the prairie, and what happened in the sky and, and the, the dust pneumonia and the blindness that happened because of these dust storms. And then what happened in the aftermath and what we've learned from the dust bowl and how we're trying to preserve the land and farm differently so that'll never happen again. That was The Worst Hard Time by Timothy Egan. I've heard about that one over and over again, and it sounds fascinating. As someone who loves disaster stories, anything called The Worst Hard Time, that's going to catch my eye. That's the book for you. That's right. I was going to say some of my other honorable mentions in the history category are The Fallen Rise, the story of 9-11, which we're about to have the 20th anniversary of that. So that one's kind of timely. One Summer by Bill Bryson, all about the fascinating things that happened in America during the summer of 1927. Radium Girls by Kate Moore. I think about that book constantly. I dearly, dearly loved it. And Flyboys by James Bradley. All good choices. So the next one is probably my very favorite nonfiction book, and that is Rocket Men, The Daring Odyssey of Apollo 8 and the Astronauts Who Made Man's First Journey to the Moon by Robert Curson. I just recommended this recently to my 18-year-old daughter, and she read it in like a day and a half as well. It is so fast-paced. It is so fascinating. Another story where he does a wonderful job of not only depicting what happens with Apollo 8 and how they got it up into the air and the astronauts around the moon so quickly, but also everything else that was going on in 1968 and sort of set the stage for just how it all could come about and what was happening in the world. So at the time, the U.S. was in the middle of the space race. There were all these rumors that Russia was getting ready to send astronauts up into space and orbit the moon, and the U.S. didn't want that to happen. So in August of 1968, they pledged that they are going to have astronauts up in the air and around the moon by December 1968, which is literally four months. So everybody panicked and then got to work. And so it's the story of everyone involved, not just the astronauts, but the people on the ground, the engineers, the mathematicians, all of the societal implications, the families of the astronauts. And that part was one of the parts that was the most fascinating to me because this was the first time that people had gone to the other side of the moon. So while they had projections and they had ideas about how it was going to work, they certainly weren't certain that it was going to work. So these women were saying you know, goodbye. Two of the astronauts were married, I'm pretty sure, and the third wasn't. And at least one of them had children. And they had media and documentary workers in their homes filming everything while they were trying to watch what was happening on TV. The whole thing was just absolutely fascinating. But thinking about it from a perspective of a wife and having children and having to say goodbye to your husband and not knowing whether he would come back and that the whole world was watching and the whole space race with the Russians because the Russians didn't think we could do it. So they they feel still to this day that they just were slow and didn't get it together, but that they could have gotten up sooner than we did, but that we ended up winning that part of the race and obviously the man on the moon as well. So all of it was just wonderful. It's just a fabulous read. He did so much research, spoke to the astronauts who are still alive, and just really pulled together so many different facts. And I, I, I plan to reread it again soon because I just thought it was such a wonderful book. And that is Rocket Men by Robert Curson. 
Did you ever read The Astronaut Wives? No. That one seems, I think you need to read that one. They're very similar, but this talks about all the women who were behind the astronauts. I loved that book. That sounds really good because, yes, you know, you think about it from the perspective of kind of how we are now with husbands and children and what it would be like to have all of that happening and then have it be so public. Right. Yeah, I I think you would really enjoy that one. Okay, good. All right. My next, I'm moving into my favorite genre of all, and that is disaster stories. I don't know why I love this so much. I think when I was a little girl, every month I'd get the Reader's Digest. And the first article I always wanted to read, they had a feature every month called Drama in Real Life. And I loved reading these crazy survival stories. So that, I guess, went from articles to now books that I just eat up. So the first one I wanted to talk about is The Children's Blizzard by David Laskin. This is not to be confused with the children's blizzard that is a fiction. This is the nonfiction account of the horrible blizzard that occurred in the South Dakota area in 1888. And this is right around the time of Little House on the Prairie, the, the cold winter kind of talks about this time period of crazy temperature drops in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota area. So this story talks about... I, we really didn't know much about meteorology at the time. These children woke up on a day that was actually fairly warm that day. It was in the 30s, which sounds horribly freezing to a Texan, but it was no big deal to these little kids. So these children went off to school, a lot of them without their coats on because it was it seemed like it was going to be a nice warm day. And right about the time school was to be let out, a huge Arctic blast occurred and the teachers decided to go ahead and send the children home. And that was a huge mistake. So these children were racing down the prairie, going home, and a lot of them uh, did not make it home. So it is a tragic story, but it's one maybe would be good to read it in August around here. We're all so hot. This would make you very, very cold. But a fascinating look at actually what the wind chill factor, I learned a lot about temperature drops, and uh, it was a fascinating story. That's The Children's Blizzard by David Laskin. So my next one is Standoff, Race, Policing, and a Deadly Assault that Gripped a Nation by Jamie Thompson. And this is about the police shooting that occurred in Dallas in July of 2016 during a Black Lives Matter protest. There had been a rash of shootings of young Black men, and there was a protest scheduled, a Black Lives Matter protest, very peaceable protest. The police were there just monitoring everything. Nothing had happened out of the ordinary at all. And then this man showed up and gunned down. I think in the end, it was, I think five officers died and then a couple bystanders were injured. And so she looks in, she, she interviews all sorts of people who participated, police officers as protesters, some of the doctors that saw the individuals that, you know, showed up at the hospital once they'd been shot. It is a completely fascinating look at how we got to where we are, not in terms of the, the shootings of young black men, but in terms of these protests and the police officers and how there's so much mistrust on both sides and the lack of training for some of these police officers to try to handle these types of events and de-escalating versus escalating and just the, the police officer culture, also, you know, protest culture, all of it. I felt like it was a very balanced view and she made some great points all the way around. And I love that she interviewed a variety of different people. And it was a really interesting glimpse into maybe why these, maybe it, it is why some of these shootings continue to happen because the, the training isn't sufficient and there isn't the focus on the 
social side of it and the de-escalating and and maybe people who have different degrees kind of coming in like psychiatrists and people that can kind of help understand what's happening versus just immediately going for a weapon. So I thought it was a great read, a very quick read and, you know, very timely read. And that is Standoff by Jamie Thompson. Yeah, we had that one at Fabled. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Got a couple of books to read. (laughs) I know. I feel like that's what I say. I have that one, but I haven't gotten to it yet. All right. My next disaster story is In Harm's Way, The Sinking of the USS Indianapolis and the Extraordinary Story of Its Survivors by Doug Stanton. And of course, if you are familiar with the movie Jaws, the, at the end, they talk about the one of the sailors was a USS Indianapolis survivor. And this is the, the ship that was sunk and the U.S. Navy didn't know where it was. And they were sunk in shark-infested water. So it talks about the survivors and what happened to them. Also, interesting, I, if memory serves, I think the, they, they interviewed the Japanese captain who, who sunk the ship, and he dealt with a lot of guilt from this. But uh, it was a fascinating story. I learned a lot. There was actually a survivor of the USS Indianapolis who lived in Waco. I always would see him at the local donut shop in town. He always had his USS Indianapolis hat on. So it, it just was a really, really interesting story. And that is In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton. That's something I know very little about. You need to read the book. I do, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) So my next is High Risers, Cabrini Green and the Fate of American Public Housing by Ben Austin. So Cabrini Green was one of the very large housing projects in Chicago. So I went to college in Chicago in the late 80s, early 90s. And actually, my thesis was on Cabrini Green. So I toured it a number of times. I researched a variety of things related to it. And so not that long after I did all of that, those projects came down. I think it started in the mid-90s until the late 90s, and they pulled them down, and they pulled down all of the other housing projects that were also in Chicago. He kind of walks through the reason that they originally went up, and the idea came from a, a social worker. So, I mean, the original idea was we'll have a, a you know community, we'll put all of these buildings together. We can provide all different sorts of services, have them monitored, a safe place for people to live. But in the end, through a variety of factors, politics, underfunding, theft of some of the funding, some of the racial uh, policies that Chicago had in place, the projects ended up in heavily segregated areas. And then they were like these islands. You know, I think there were 22 buildings at Cambrini Green set on less than 70 acres. And there were no services anywhere near there, you know, no grocery stores, no gas stations, no nothing. And then on top of that, because of the underfunding, there weren't people there to provide security. So the all the light bulbs would get knocked out in the stairwells and they ended up having to put up all of this chicken wire on a variety of the stairwells to keep things, people from going over the sides. And so it just kind of walks through what started out as something with a, you know, a very great idea for how to house low-income people and provide them a good start into a complete nightmare. And he does it in such an interesting fashion because he ends up interviewing five or six different people who lived at Cabrini Green and, you know, how, what Cabrini Green meant to them. And he really balances it. And some of them are the ones trying to help out. Some of the ones are the ones causing the problems. But it was just a really interesting glimpse into the American housing shortage or crisis for low-income people and a, a very failed attempt at how to solve it. And that is High Risers by Ben Austin. Very good. 
Okay, my next disaster story is The Great Halifax Explosion by John Bacon. This was such an interesting story I knew nothing about. Halifax is the second largest natural harbor in the world, second only to Sydney. And so I learned what that meant and how the Americans used that harbor during World War I to hide ships. And during one tragic event, there were two ships in this harbor that were playing chicken with each other. One of them was saying, you need to move over. And the other one said, no, you need to move over. And guess what? (laughs) There was a huge crash. And I think one of them had enough explosive dynamite to uh, set off basically an atom bomb in this natural harbor. The town was just completely demolished. So many People went blind because of flying glass. It, it talks a lot about the, the survivors of this explosion. And very sweetly and interestingly, the town of Boston really came to the aid of Halifax and um, helped with getting lumber and, and really getting the town back on its feet. And since that time, Halifax sends a Christmas tree to Boston every year as a thank you. So I, I talked about this book to a woman from Halifax several years ago, and she told me that her father lived through this tragedy. And it's a very, very interesting story. I learned a whole lot, and I highly recommend it. It's The Great Halifax Explosion by John Bacon. That's another one that I bought when I visited you, and I need to get to it. Yes. Clearly, that's a resounding theme here. (laughs) My next is Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip by Richard, and I guess it's Ratay. It's R-A-T-A-Y. And this is one I actually referenced recently in my interview with Elizabeth Letts about the right of her life, because portions of the right of her life reminded me a little bit of Don't Make Me Pull Over. So in this book, Richard chronicles what the, the beginning of the interstate and road trips and automobiles and how much that has change the way we do things in America. And a little bit of what I talked with Elizabeth about, that when the interstates came in, they bypassed the towns because all these small towns did not want tons and tons of traffic coming through them. And so they created the business bypass thinking everybody would you know, come off and come into town and eat something, get gas and go on their way. But instead, gas stations and restaurants and motels moved out to the interstate. And it really kind of effectively killed a lot of these towns. He talks about that. He talks about seatbelt laws and the speed limit and how it's changed and why. And while this doesn't sound like it would be all that intriguing, it is so fascinating. And how different towns have made their livelihood based on road tripping. Like there's a town in Georgia and they had this whole scheme set up where there was a like tripwire behind a billboard as you headed into town. I can't remember exactly how it worked, but some way they were tricking everybody that came through and The town was very wealthy, and it was because they gave speeding tickets to literally every non-resident who came through based on some way that they'd set up, you know, this kind of trigger and then would would stop people. And, you know, this was, of course, like probably 20, 30 years ago when people didn't have their own radars, and it was harder to kind of monitor what was happening. But so then they got busted for that, I think, by the FBI. So it was just kind of all these funny stories about the way different things came about and how much the automobile and the interstate have impacted our lives as Americans. And that is Don't Make Me Pull Over by Richard Rattay. Okay, I need to read that. I love a good road trip. I, I am so much happier behind the wheel of a car than flying. And that sounds very, very interesting to me. It really is because it just talks about how, you know, they required the speed limit go down to 55. And for a while, they thought that that was really helping um, prevent accidents, but in the end, it wasn't at all. 
And so then they put it back up to 65. And then now eventually, you know, some places it's 75 and 80. So it just kind of walks through why some of those things happened. And then just all these quirky places. It's a really great read. We, we love to road trip too. So if you love to road trip, it's a really fun read. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna order that one for the store. All right, my last disaster book is Kingdom of Ice by Hampton Sides. Hampton Sides, I think that he is a professor at UT and he is a go-to author for me. I, I love how he writes about history. And this is the story of the USS Jeanette. This book talks a lot about the race to circumnavigate the Arctic Ocean, which was extremely difficult and still is to this day. So two years into the voyage, the Jeanette's hull got stuck in ice and the ice just kind of crushed in on the Jeanette and it was sunk. So these poor sailors were thousands of miles north of Siberia. You can imagine how cold that was. And they were just... They had to walk, and no one knew where they were, of course. So it talked about enduring snow blindness and polar bear attacks and ferocious storms. The crew battled madness and starvation, and I just was captivated by the story. I gave it to my dad. He loved it, too. This has got broad appeal, and that is Kingdom of Ice by Hampton Sides. And a couple of my honorable mentions for disaster books are Midnight Chernobyl. And the In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex by Nathaniel Philbrick. And if any one of you know really good natural disaster stories, send them my way. Definitely, those are your type of books. I'm laughing. I'm like, okay, I didn't even know there were that many disaster stories out there. Now I'm going to have to catch up. People on Bookstagram know how much I love these books. So I've been sent quite a few of them, and they are on my TBR mountain, and I can't wait to get to them. Well, my last one is The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power by Deirdre Mask. So she was mailing a letter from Ireland to the U.S. when she bought the postage stamp. She started thinking about exactly how that works when you're sending a letter from one country to another country. How much money is given to the, the Irish post office versus the American post office where the letter is being delivered. So she then looked up something, something about the postage. And that ended up leading her to a group that was assigning addresses to homes. And she was not aware that many places in the world, in fact, more places than not, don't have addresses. And so she began the process of researching what it means to not have an address and why they don't. She actually started in West Virginia, where until 1991, most people who didn't live in major cities in West Virginia didn't have addresses. And still now, a fair number don't. And then she kind of works her way around the world. And not only what it means to not have an address and the process for assigning addresses, but also how streets are named, what they mean, how areas are defined by their street names, just a variety of things. And it's just really fascinating because it targeted all of these things I'd never thought about. Like if you don't have an address, you can't get a job. You go to apply and every single place wants you to fill out an application, which includes your address. So even if you have a home, but you don't have an address, you effectively can't get a job. You can't get credit. You can't get a phone. You can't have things delivered to you, which in our day and age, you know, during the pandemic, can you imagine? So it was just a really fascinating read and some of the underpinnings for why that is the way it is. And then in some of these, like, like in Calcutta, which I think is called Calcutta now, the slums, they're trying to assign addresses there so people can get benefits. But it's not like a house is just a house. A lot of times it's these buildings just stacked right on top of each other. So they're trying to figure out with GPS coordinates how to assign a, an address to there so that somebody could apply for benefits or 
you know, whatever else it is that they need. So it's a really, really interesting read and will make you think about things I bet you've never thought about before. And that's The Address Book by Deirdre Mask. That one looks so interesting to me. It's really sold well at Fabled. And I, I, anyone I have talked to who has read it has really, really enjoyed it. It just dives into all of these things that I'd never even thought about before and were fascinating. So I really like it and I do recommend it to people regularly. Great choice. Well, I think that's all of mine. Are you done with yours? I'm done. (laughs) Well, hopefully everybody's enjoyed hearing some good nonfiction that sound like they would be fiction and will be able to make their way into nonfiction if they're not comfortable or find some new reads if they are comfortable. Yes, it's definitely a wonderful genre and there's something for everyone. Well, thank you as always, Elizabeth, for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I always enjoy talking to you, Cindy. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.